a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we talked about a hotly debated topic. Should we be eating animal products? Our first guest, Dr Malcolm McKay, was a plant-based GP who was not only passionate about a whole plant-based diet for himself, but also for his patients, many of whom suffer chronic issues like diabetes and heart disease. We were then joined by Holly Sinclair, trainer, nutritionist and founder of The Women Series, an education platform for women looking to better their body and their health. As a former vegan, Holly spoke about what eating only plants did to her health and her education and recovery since. Now, our first guest was Dr. Malcolm McKay, a general practitioner with over 30 years of experience, now practicing at Clinicare Fitzroy. He is the co-founder of Whole Plant Based Health, a website and program. And as a doctor, he's got a special interest in preventing and managing chronic disease with, no surprises here, whole foods and plant-based nutrition. I thought I'd just kick the conversation off with an easy one. What exactly makes a good diet? We could really get down to basics here and go with the evidence. And I really do like to stick with the science and the evidence as as much as is possible. We know that it's healthier to eat more whole grains. We know it's healthier to eat more legumes. We know that we all know that fruits and vegetables, and there's lots of evidence they're good for us. And we have evidence that processed food's not so good for health and that Certainly with more than a small amount of animal protein um, is associated with uh, worse health outcomes. So there's some of the basics. So that could lead you to a diet that's predominantly plant-based and minimally processed. So when we talk about predominantly plant-based, are you talking about vegans? Yeah, I actually brand myself as um, whole foods plant-based. So, you know, there's a little bit, there's, there's a big overlap and you could say my day-to-day diet was vegan. So veganism is defined by absolutely no use of animal products and often extended to not use other products in your clothing or cosmetics, etc. that have animal products in them. So Where, it's like, would you say it's a religion? Look, food, our eating habits, our culture and our food, if you start talking to people, they, they, it sounds like it's a religion. But no, it's not a religion. It's not something you worship. I would say the contrast, not really that much contrast, the slight difference with uh, uh, whole foods, plant-based diet, and I'll abbreviate this to plant-based, is the focus really is more on what we're actually eating rather than what we're excluding. So the focus is on adding in whole grains, legume dishes, vegetable dishes, fruits, a few nuts and seeds. I guess, you know, the exclusions, um, no or minimal animal products, no oil and sugar or minimal oil and sugar. And I guess there are additions to what people with a vegan diet, you can have a vegan diet and you can actually be 
very unhealthy. You could eat, um, you know, fried chips and Oreos and Coca-Cola, for example. And tell me, how did you come to arrive at this lifestyle? Did you grow up in a vegetarian household? No, actually, my family gave a lot of importance to, you know, eating the good protein, rich eggs and meat and dairy foods. Uh, And, you know, and I guess that sort of gave me an idea that nutrition was important. Partway through medical school, um, the the cardiologist told us that we'd all eventually get terrible artery disease all over our body, you know, heart attacks, impotence, leg amputations, etc. And it was an inevitable part of ageing. And then another lecturer told us that there were peoples in the world who actually never got any artery disease. And that was a wake-up call for me. And so that was like, I'm in on this. And at that point... I was about uh, 20, 21 years old and I was getting back into some distance running and marathon running and I sort of thought, right, this could be good for performance as well. And so I was in on this, you know, it was like going to be okay, it's going to be oats and brown rice and vegetables and fruits and things to never get heart disease and to um, be a decent runner. Do you think that a whole plant-based food, plant-based diet is optimal for an athlete? Yes, yes. I think the same nutrition that's, that's um, good for human performance is good for human health, is good for heart health. With some modifications like the athlete's going to have to eat a few more concentrated calories, you know, if they're burning 4,000 calories a day. But yeah. the fundamentals are, are the same. There are already many international uh, top quality athletes who follow vegan diets primarily for performance. Because I know um, for a fact that Venus Williams is a vegan and she went down that path um, and this is well documented because of an autoimmune condition. Talk us through how a plant-based diet may or may not help for that sort of a situation. When when you're eating um, animal products, you're going to have more inflammation, you know, of higher cholesterol levels. The saturated fat's going to promote inflammation. Your blood's going to be that little bit cloudier and claggier. Your artery function's not going to be as good because of, um, you know, not just the cholesterol, but the TMAO your gut microbes make when you eat meat. Can you just unpack TMAO? What is TMAO for the, for the normal people? TMAO in two sentences. The carnitine and red meat and the choline that's particularly in eggs, but other animal products too. When it meets the gut microbiome of a non-vegan, a substance called TMA is produced, which the liver modifies to TMAO, and it's an inflammatory, artery-damaging molecule. And so that gets released in the gut when you're breaking down, say, an animal product and then goes into the bloodstream. Yeah. And, and then what, is it, what could it do to us from that point? Um, well, it's going to um, worsen the effect of, like, cholesterol and blood fats or, or smoking or, or high blood pressure, other factors that might cause um, damage alcohol? to the lining of the artery. Yeah, I mean, alcohol has a lot of negative health effects. I think the day that, you know, we can't say that we're drinking red wine because we want to improve our health, maybe we'd say that red wine wasn't as bad as uh, drinking other alcoholic beverages because it's got some redeeming features, but you'd be even healthier if you ate the grapes. Just looping back, I'm fascinated that there is a very strong lobby within the fitness community that promotes a, I guess you call it paleo, heavy meat, fat, keto, you know, that sort of camp. What would you have to say to that? What is an enormous movement? I mean, I I just thought I'd whip through a few of the fads that we've been exposed to in the last, say, two decades of dieting. Ducan, Atkins, Paleo, Anti-China Study, the Plant Paradox, which is a curly one, the Bulletproof Diet, the Mediterranean Diet, and then the CSIRO's Total Wellbeing Diet. 
That's just my top nine. Okay, well, I'd separate out the Mediterranean diet, which in its true form, not that there ever was a single Mediterranean diet, is a predominantly plant-based diet rich in whole grains, legumes, fruits and vegetables with small amounts of, uh, you know, fish, dairy, other meats. So that, that sort of unpacks the Mediterranean diet as a semi-plant-based diet. Back to the question of athletes. Yeah. When you eat plants, they're full of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory substances. It's not just turmeric that has anti-inflammatory things. <laughs> Many plants do. And, you know, often the difference with athletes uh, on, on, you know, who's going to be the winner and have the better performance is who can do the extra training sessions. And so if I fill myself up with anti-inflammatory, antioxidant foods, I'll get less inflamed. I'll make a quicker recovery. I'll be able to do those extra training sessions. So their recovery is much better. I would say that's one of the big advantages of the um, of a plant-based diet for athletes. The other one is the human body. The preferred fuel of the human body is uh, carbohydrates. Like the, the brain will run on carbohydrates and, you know, unless it's starved of them. And the muscles will perform best when they're loaded with carbohydrate. But as to um, getting back to all these diets you mentioned, I just singled out the Mediterranean diet as being more plant-based. You know, it's like they're all variations on the Atkins diet, like eat more meat and bacon and eggs and fat-rich dairy foods. And, you know, Atkins didn't do well in the end. (laughs) Like he died overweight with heart disease. That should have been the end of the story. But then it was rebirth as a paleo diet. Was the anthropologist tell us that, yes, yes, all, all ancient humans did eat some meat, depending where they lived and what was available. But the anthropologists generally agree that the um, Paleolithic diet was a predominantly plant-based diet, that things like tubers and grains, plant-based foods made up the majority of the diet. And, you know, in terms of composition, um, a bit more similar to a modern vegan diet than a modern uh, Paleo-Atkins diet. Why do you think that these things have taken such a hold on the community? Um, It's a manly thing to be hunting beasts and, you know, eating meats. You know, and there's that protein myth that sort of has sort of risen up again that somehow protein makes you stronger and makes your muscles work better. And proteins, protein, protein actually comes from the word of prime importance. But humans actually have uh, quite a low protein need. And even if you go on the Institute of Sport numbers, my giant bowl of porridge in the morning meets the protein numbers. It's a big bowl of porridge. For the you know, day? No, no, but for um, that meal, for for that meal, for a post workout meal, and the key thing there is, I'm eating enough calories to meet my extra calorie needs from you know the, the morning ten kilometer run or whatever. You know, the idea that eating a lot more protein is going to make me somehow stronger is just mythology. Once we meet those protein requirements, more is not better. In fact, more is worse. More stresses the kidneys, more causes bone loss. You know, it'd be different if you're eating beans for your protein and and whole grains, but I guess if you're eating, um, you know, meat and dairy and eggs for protein, you're also going to have a lot of um, inflammation and bad stuff going too when you try and eat more protein. There is certainly a lobby that would say that eating a big bowl of porridge in the morning, it's a lot of carbohydrates. And if you're concerned about, say, body composition, you're better off going on a slightly lower GI regime. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, GI is a measure of how fast carbohydrates are absorbed. And it's, it's of, even the man who developed it, you know, questions the way it's uh, used excessively. My thoughts are that... Nutrition 101, carbohydrates, protein have approximately the same number of calories per gram, four uh, four calories per gram. Fat, nine calories per gram. 
So, you know, if you want to make a meal higher in calories without making it bigger, add some fat-rich ingredients. So there's no sort of rational reason why um, carbohydrates would be any worse for weight gain than, uh, than protein. And in fact, you know, when when people are on weight loss diets in a metabolic ward, it really doesn't matter what the macro ratio is. If they're in a calorie deficit, they lose weight. So um, you would disagree with those who say that, you know, going keto is the quickest way to get a, a gym body. That's right. The evidence does not support that as far as the science goes. You know, if, if you're losing weight, you're losing weight. So, I mean, the the topic of calories is a controversial one because you've, you've touched on the fact that, yeah, fat does have much higher energy density per gram. But what about the nonlinear things like appetite control or that feeling of satiety when you eat something greasy, be it a chunk of butter or a half an avocado? Yeah, those foods are also very high in calories. And, and, you know, it's like, oh, what happens if I got hungry again mid-morning and ate an apple? I mean, that's really not such a bad thing. The evidence for satiety is that the bulk of the food, how bulky it is, is more important. That is the calorie density. That is, you know, if I have 500 grams of food that I'm going to put in my stomach, half a litre of food, if it's chicken, it's going to be a much smaller volume than if it's uh, brown rice and beans. So in terms of the satiety research, it would actually favour foods that are, you know, moderate to low in calories, like... um, the cooked whole grains and the beans and particularly the fruits and vegetables are quite low in calories. Even even potatoes in there with about a third of the calorie concentration of a piece of lean meat. So I'm going to take a controversial turn towards the topic of cancer because plants and cancer, vegetarianism, ketosis, this is a hotbed of debate. Most recently, I had a friend who was a vegetarian diagnosed with breast cancer sent to the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Her advice as a breast cancer patient was to be put on a keto diet. What are your thoughts on that? It's been known for decades that uh, breast cancer is an uncommon disease in countries where they have a low consumption of animal products and a whole high consumption of, you know, not too processed plant foods. And that's been across the world. And the countries that do a transition like Japan, transitioning from a rice, albeit white rice food yep. and high plant content diet to a more Western diet, their incidence of breast cancer and prostate cancer has um, gone right up with that. And, and, you know, we even understand some of the mechanisms. You know, when you eat more meat and dairy versus plants, you, a woman's estrogen levels increase. The vegans have the lowest incidence of heart disease and cancer and diabetes. And then the vegetarians have a bit more and the meat eaters have a bit more than that. Just to expand on that, when we look at the blue zone communities, because I know we have the the, um, Japanese in Okinawa, and these are all very long-lived people, and then I know in parts of regional Italy, the Seventh-day Adventists, I know are part of these very long-lived blue zone communities, they aren't all uniformly plant-based. What are your thoughts on that? Can you eat a little bit of meat and have the same risk level as someone that is completely plant-based? Is moderation okay? No, I think when you start off with such a high level of animal product consumption as Australia, moderation, like what we consider moderation is much higher than these countries have. So there's some research like the um, China project that suggests that that by the time you get up to 5% of calories from animal products, your cancer risk is already increasing. 
generally Dan Butner who wrote the Blue Zones and, and it's you know, not really a formal study, it's more a bit of an observation, commented that, well, if they do eat any, uh, you know, meat, flesh, it's generally not more than uh, 100 grams, you know, five times a month. And in case of the Okinawans, it's like 15 grams of fish and two or three grams of other animal products per day. So, you know, if we're talking about moderation of animal products, we're probably talking about 50 grams or less of meat with dairy being factored into that as well. So Australians have a pretty good life expectancy, but I found out yesterday that Australia's consumption of meat per capita is 52 kilos of chicken per head and 165 kilos of red meat per head per year. So we're looking at 217 kilos of flesh, animal flesh, for every man, woman, child in the country. Do you think that Australia could radically change its health landscape if it reduced that level of meat consumption? You know, I think the world has to because um, the the environment, the greenhouse gas, the other environmental factors, we just cannot feed a world of 9 billion people and, you know, we can't go on farming as much animal products as we do without, you know, really, really damaging the environment. But can Australia change? Well, you know, there are some industry groups that are fighting back. You know, the uh, meat, dairy and egg industries are advertising quite strongly to doctors over the last few years and uh, they fund studies as well. You know, I'd like to show you that eggs don't increase heart risk as long as you compare eggs for breakfast with meat for breakfast, but they don't announce that with a media release. Um, Yeah, I think if Australians actually had the true information, if if they knew that you know, half of them are, most of them are going to get some artery disease and half of them will probably die of, of you know, strokes and heart, heart disease. So um, I think if Australians knew the truth that mostly whole foods, plant-based diet was going to vastly improve their health and not just, you know, how are you going to be in 20 years' time? How do you feel now? Like, are you lean and energetic? Can you get out of bed and you feel like going for a brisk walk? So, you know, it's about quality of life. It's not just about, you know, living a longer, more miserable life. It's about (laughs) quality of life. I am sure that there are some people thinking about their next barbecue in different light at this point. Malcolm, you've been incredibly generous with your knowledge and given us so much to think about today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, mate. Malcolm made a number of compelling take-home points. He pointed out that the rate of cancer is lowest in vegans and vegetarians. And for many people with diabetes and heart disease, they have been enormously helped by a plant-based diet. However, Malcolm's perspective left me with a few questions. Are there really large communities who have survived eating only a plant-based diet? And if this is true... How is it that the Indigenous people of Greenland, the Arctic and Canada have existed on a high-saturated fat diet of fish and sea mammals with such good heart health? On this note, let's hear from Holly Sinclair. Holly's been a personal trainer, nutritionist and fitness coach for over 10 years. She's also been on her own health and wellbeing journey, formerly a long-distance runner and vegetarian. She now has a very different perspective and is an advocate of a diet that includes plenty of animal product. Holly Sinclair, welcome. Hello. I thought I would kick off by asking you, what exactly makes a good diet? Um, I think if I reflect on my own journey in terms of nutrition, I mean, particularly everybody that works within this health industry, hopefully they're taking it seriously. I think they all go through a process of testing out the waters. And certainly for me, initially, 
becoming a vegetarian and then ultimately um, experiencing being a vegan. I was vegan for three years. That was part of my health journey. Um, but unfortunately, what ended up happening is it really started to affect my health, which is ironic. I lost my menstrual cycle for three years. I actually got missed, well, not misdiagnosed, but I got diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome at 22, to which most of the medical practitioners suggested I remove the ovary because it was so, there were so many cysts, but not one person asked me, hey, what are you eating? what's going on there. So luckily I was in an environment that, you know, I had other options and I started to explore, okay, well, clearly my body isn't functioning optimally. And you know, I think being vegan, there's, there's a whole aspect of ideology associated to what you're doing day in and day out. Um, it really does start to become a part of your being and it's very hard to detach from that, right? So because when you start to understand it's not serving you on a biochemical level, you have to really go through a process of almost like an ego death, right? Because you have to sort of say to yourself, I can't do this anymore, but my beliefs are so strong in what I have been doing. So let's talk about that moment because when I know that for many people that are tuned in, they've all heard of polycystic ovaries Mm. and often that's um, it, that can be in isolation, but it's often associated with a whole syndrome of things and a certain body type. Mm. What was going on for you when you got that diagnosis, when you found out, well, my periods have stopped and my ovaries are actually mm. reacting? Um, so in terms of what I was doing, I mean, I was running. So um, <laughs> endurance training tends to go hand in hand with a plant-based or vegan diet. So I was running every day. I was eating very strict vegan guidelines. Um, absolutely no fats, uh, all carbohydrate-based foods, lots of grains and oats and fruits. And and I think also, I mean, one thing that never gets talked about in this conversation is that a vegan diet often promotes under-eating, right? So I think a lot, particularly a lot of females are drawn to a plant-based diet initially because it means that you can effectively restrict without being judged. And so for me, certainly that was sort of what I was experiencing. And so if you look at that from a stress perspective, it's humongous. And just as you said about uh, PCOS, most of the research, as you would know, has gone into how blood sugar management or mismanagement uh, helps to create cyst growth on the ovaries. And, you know, this is why doctors often suggest metformin yep. as a, um, what's the word, support, uh, I guess. Yeah. And just for anyone that doesn't know metformin, metformin is sort of a drug that controls your sugar and insulin spikes. Mm, it's a diabetic drug. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's often suggested to those that are dealing with PCOS. So there's this certain level of understanding that blood sugar is a problem for yep. women experiencing PCOS. However, the treatment is never, hey, what are you eating? <laughs> what could be creating a lot of this insulin resistance? And, and what was your body like at the time? I know oh, as a trainer, you don't mind talking about your body composition. Oh, yeah. And- like, so for me now, just for um, people listening, I'm 56 kilos. I mean, I'm quite petite, but I was 49 kilos at the time. Um, like very... Uh, weak physically, but I think also very weak mentally, right? So um, very lacking resilience. I was in chronic pain. I had chronic, chronic uh, back pain and hip pain. And we'll get into that in a little bit, but that was all a byproduct of the fact that I was just lacking so many nutrients. And on top of that, I was, we talk a lot at Fifth Element about stress load, 
and yeah. how your stress cannot just come from emotions, although that's a part of it, but stress often comes and is triggered by many controllable factors. And one of those factors is nutrition. Um, and so my stress load or what's termed in the industry as allostatic load was humongous, right? So I was under eating, I was lacking nutrients, I was overtraining, I never slept, I relied on stimulants like coffee, um, you know, I was working ridiculous hours, which is a part of the personal training industry, but it's, it's about the amount of load that's being put on your body. And then, you know, and then my body just broke down and it ended up with, it stopped my periods because the whole thing is your body is going to go into a survival mode. Yeah, and it was interesting though. You're not, you weren't overweight at any point. No, no, which is traditional for yeah. PCOS diagnosis. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but, you know, obviously my body went into shutdown mode. And the first thing, especially for a woman, I think, you know, we have this beautiful thing called a period, which allows us to understand where our health is at. Um, but ultimately, if you're stressed and, you know, in primal times you're running from a tiger, you're not going to want to breed, right? Your body's yeah. not going to want to reproduce. So it just shut, it starts to shut down all of the aspects of your health that are not required to stay alive effectively. So, you know, that's certainly what happened to me. And I think beyond that as well, I had horrendous digestive issues and that was definitely attributed to the If you don't mind, what diet. do you mean? What do you mean by horrendous digestion? Oh, I didn't go to the toilet. Right. I never went to the toilet. I went maybe once a week. Um, once a week? Yep. But you're eating only plants? Yep. Once a week. Um, horrendously gassy and bloated. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. And I, you know, I even think back, this was eight years ago now, but I think back now, like, yeah, I'd have to be very mindful about like, um, you know, farting or, or being bloated or anything like that around like in social engagements. Cause I, it was just horrendous. I don't know what other word to use. So it was, I mean, would you say you were constipated? Oh, definitely. And eating mainly plants? I was the meaning of constipation. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You look it up in the dictionary and there's my name. But yeah, so like, you know, and I, one thing that I was consuming a lot of was legumes. Um, like probably 60 to 70% of my diet was legumes. So, you know, and, and knowing what I know now, there's a lot of issues with sort of what takes place. I mean, I always say to my clients, you know, when you eat um, baked beans yeah. and people associate that with farting, yeah, that's a digestive response, right? So there's this intuitive understanding that beans can create gas, but that's not a good thing. Um, and so what tends to happen in a plant-based or vegan diet is you do get forced to consume a lot of these products. And what's the, what drives the, what's the philosophy that sort of says legumes are on the menu? Because there's a couple of counterpoint, there's a couple of counter arguments to that, which I've been reading about lately. So why do vegetarians and vegans go heavy on legumes? Well, the main thing is the protein. Um, and so the argument from the vegan side of things is that you can get adequate amounts of protein via beans. Um, and obviously they use soy as well, but I mean, we can get into soy later, but it's just such a toxic um, thing to put into your body. But if you look at beans, I mean, lentils would be the highest source of protein. Yep. in a plant. Um, so you get about 18 grams of protein per 200 grams of lentils. Cooked lentils? Or Cooked like, lentils, yep. yeah. 
<coughs> which one is a lot. Okay, so dietary guidelines suggest about 0.8 to 1.5 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. But it's very important to keep in mind that those dietary guidelines are based off not getting a disease. So it's a very low baseline. Yeah. Okay. So um, in order to achieve optimal health, you probably want to look at at a minimum 1.8 to 2 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And so if you look at that throughout the day and you were going to do it on a vegan diet, you would have to eat four to five bowls of 200 to 300 grams of lentils a day to get that amount of protein. It's a lot of gas. It's a lot of gas. But then also what's not spoken about is, yes, you get 18 grams of protein, but you also get 40 grams of carbohydrates. Per bowl. It's huge, Mm. right? So if you look at that comparatively to, say, um, a grass-fed sirloin steak, 100 grams of a steak is 25 grams of protein with zero grams of carbohydrates. So the load on your um, liver to produce glucose and then insulin it's completely, it's, it's like cheese and chalk looking at the two um, food groups. So your neurotransmitters, which are the conversation in your brain, they yep. are what we call biogenic. And so that means that they are amino acid dependent. And if you're not consuming those amino acids, you're not going to be producing your neurotransmitters to the optimal level that you should be producing them. And so you look at sort of, there's over 100 neurotransmitters, but the big four are GABA, dopamine, serotonin, and acetylcholine. And you look at those four and you say, okay, well, what is the role that they play in the body? And the first three, GABA, dopamine and serotonin, once you start to deplete them, you cannot reproduce them naturally. You have to consume the precursors that are needed in order to produce them. If we look at essential amino acids, phenylalanine is the precursor for dopamine, okay? Tyrosine is needed for dopamine production. You need tryptophan for serotonin. Um, But let's look at acetylcholine because acetylcholine is so important that the body actually... Um, does reproduce it naturally, okay? It's precursors, and just for those who don't, aren't familiar with neurotransmitters, acetylcholine plays a role in our short-term to long-term memory conversion. It helps with muscle contraction. It's excitatory in the brain but inhibitory in the heart, so it helps to like um, ignite our parasympathetic nervous system. And so you need phosphatidylcholine and phosphatidylserine to produce acetylcholine, Now, choline or phosphatidylcholine comes from seafood and serine is found in brain. And so if you're not consuming these food groups, your body, it's pretty cool actually, your body will start to break down its own brain tissue because that is rich in choline and serine in order to support acetylcholine production. That's how important it is. But that's obviously got a shelf life in terms of breaking down your own brain tissue. I'm going to like throw a curveball in here in the sense that I, you know, I'm curious to know what whether we can draw any conclusions from communities because mm. I hear what you're saying. Like we're made up of protein. We are animals ourselves. So it makes, mm. it does, there is a certain logic to saying that, that there is, it's not efficient to have to um, assemble all these spare parts mm. from plants but what can we learn from populations that are vegetarian? Like, do we have any way to draw insight? Because, you know, 
Do we die early by mm. eating just plants? Or is it that the quality of our life and the quality of our experience is perhaps diminished by just consuming a vegetarian or vegan diet? So if, to my knowledge, this is to my knowledge, but there's never in the history been a community or tribe who survived solely on a vegan diet, ever. So evolution <laughs> confirms that there has never been a community of people who have been from birth to death, only vegans. I think that says a lot, right, in terms of the need for animal products. Now, whether that whether that need is really big or really small, cool, that can be up for debate. But I think just in general... Breast that, milk isn't vegan. I was well, just breast milk that. isn't vegan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but, and, you know, I, I would be curious to see those communities, right? And then it's also about, like, how do you distinguish health? So... You know, there are some communities that eat more plants than animal proteins, although those communities will still eat things like um, oysters and liver and, you know, small amounts of um, butters and bone broths and so forth. But, you know, how are they distinguishing their health? Are, Are you doing blood chemistry analysis? Are you doing stool analysis? Are you just looking at their happiness levels? Like there's so many aspects as to how to look at it. It's a bit... I don't know. I mean, it's a bit subjective. Yeah, no, I mean, I I hear you. I think one of the things that I'm sure people are wondering, listening in, is how do I know if I'm breaking down? Like, mm. you know, for the blokes out there that don't have ovaries that are going to react, mm. but also for the women who are um, perhaps still menstru- menstruating normally and have a reasonable menstrual cycle, what can they look for? How do, how do you know when your nutrition is deficient? Mm, Beyond it's not your body fat. You. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the big thing for me, like, I don't like to get stuck into the conversations of emotions. I think people can get really lost down that tunnel, but it's always good to keep on the facts, right? And so, you know, having um, some blood blood markers in front of you to assess them. I mean, ultimately, that is the fact. That is how your body's responding to what you're doing. Now, that's not to say that people who eat meat are, you know, super healthy either. I mean, we do a lot of blood work analysis um, at Fifth, and we've seen both plant-based dieters and meat eaters extremely unhealthy. But the, the common trend, I mean, I can look at blood work now and know that that person is a so vegan. tell us what you see. When you get like, you know, the classic case, the vegan walks in the door, mm-hmm. What do you see on a set of bloods that's, that sort of tweaks your thinking to think, oh, my goodness, I think this is vegan? Well, the big one is B12 um, and because you cannot get B12 in, from plants. Um, iron deficiency, very, very, very low cholesterol. That's always the telltale sign of a, of a vegan. And I hate to say it to the people listening, but cholesterol is really important for our health. Um, and there's a number of reasons why it would be elevated and or low um, outside of probably what, you know, most people understand it. Um, so you've got deficiencies like B12, iron, cholesterol, total proteins, um, low immune cell production, low zinc, low magnesium. So what do people consume that cause inflammation? What are our sort of top top targets? Well, this is sort of like what's ironic about a a vegan or plant-based diet is because unfortunately, I mean, if you're going to be vegan, you have to be a really good vegan. Like you have to be crazily smart and on top of what you're putting in your body because unfortunately, what most vegan diets promote is a lot of grains, 
Okay, so consuming high amounts of gluten and wheat, which it's not up for debate anymore. Okay, gluten is one of the worst things for creating inflammation in the body. There is too much science and research to say that this isn't the case, okay? Um, So gluten and and grains, you've got lots of beans, which are very high in phytates, okay? And phytate, the problem with phytates is that they actually rob your body of minerals and they slow down the absorption of things like zinc and chromium and copper and magnesium. And so this can be why people have very low um, or deficiencies of a lot of these types of minerals when they're consuming a lot of beans. And this is the whole philosophy around soaking or activating certain types of beans as well. But they're very high in phytates. What would you recommend in the simplest terms you can muster for someone that actually wants to eat a healthy diet and um, is open to eating animal products. What do you do? Uh, Well, obviously, like, the quality of the meat is super important. Um, You know, I would never consume meats that have come out of being grain-fed and antibiotic-fed, you know, grass-fed, grass-fed cattle, grass-fed anything, lots of game meats. Why is the grass so important? Because it's not carrying toxins. That's the easiest way to think about it. So if you're consuming a a cow that's been grain-fed and antibiotic-fed, you know, the liver will detoxify the uh, toxins in those food groups, but then the fat will store it, right? So if you're having a marbled sirloin steak, but it's been fed via grains, you're eating effectively the toxins that have come out of that cow. Um, So that's really the biggest problem with not consuming foods that are raised properly. Uh, and I would never do that. This, I think this is what, this is some of the issues that starts to take place in this conversation is that if you are promoting a paleo diet, which, you know, I don't want to put myself in that bracket, but let's say I'm paleo. We're not saying eat shit meat, are we? We're not right. saying like go out and just like eat the worst quality Sausages. meat in the world. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at the, the biggest argument that comes out of the plant-based diet is red meat causes cancer. Now, let's look at the research on that one. That is only talking about processed and cured meats. Okay, so that has nothing to do with um, grass-fed cattle. And that World Health Organization report that got published that, you know, everyone's up in arms about, they also looked at um, how those processed and cured meats, okay, so that what they're talking about is when you go to a 7-Eleven and there's a stick of jerky. Or, or like we're talking ham, salami, but bacon. But like really bad quality though, yeah. right? That's what they're referring to, okay? And so within that report, they started to say that these types of meats were a type 1 carcinogen and that's what the link to cancer was. So first of all, there's no actual link to red meat and cancer. That WHO report was talking about processed and cured meats. And then secondly, there was 940 other agents that were put through in that World Health um, report. Now, let's have a look at some of those other things that apparently cause, that are type 1 carcinogens and that apparently cause cancer. Uh, air. So unless you want to stop breathing, <laughs> you're going to have type 1 carcinogens. Uh, well sunlit windows. Okay, so don't go near your windows. Um, coffee, you know, which is part of a plant-based diet. Guilty as charged. Alcohol. So, I mean, it's just this ridiculous 
nobody's talking about air on the media, but all of a sudden you see these like sound bites, like red meat causes cancer. It's not true. You, you're having an argument of ideology, not fact in this instance. Often the person that turns to me and says, I don't know if I should be eating meat, is a middle-aged guy who's got a bit of heart disease risk, mm. probably drinks and thinks, I should just have one less sausage at the barbecue or mm. how do I get rid of my gut? Yeah. So in terms of like looping back to what the to-dos are, good quality grass-fed meat or, or wild-caught meat mm-hmm. is on the menu. Mm-hmm. And what else would you consider? Some grain or just no grain? Some lentils or no lentils? Uh, I think it's dependent on the individual. I think, you know, I've used red kidney beans with clients before. I eat a lot of rice myself. Um, I mean, I would never suggest things like gluten, but it's definitely, you know, epigenetics plays a huge role in nutritional choices and so does your microbiome. I mean, that's the other thing. None of these studies that are ever done about, you know, meat being cancer-causing ever look at the person's microbiome. So, you know, whatever your bacteria is doing is going to dictate how well you absorb and assimilate certain nutrients, how well you break it down, what you turn it into, all of those sorts of things. So, I mean, to to answer like what the optimal question is, I mean, you'd have to look at it on an individual basis. Holly, you have taken us through on a roller coaster (laughs) ride through some fascinating aspects of a animal inclusive diet. I think people are going to want to hear more and they can come and see you in person. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, May. When it comes to working out what to eat, what I have concluded is that we are some way off consensus. What we did discover is that both our guests have found health doing totally different things. Malcolm has personally helped many people reverse obesity, type 2 diabetes and heart disease on a plant-based diet. Yet for Holly and many others, eating only plants has caused hormonal disruption and a range of other issues. Where our guests were on the same page was the topic of sugar and processed foods, which are officially a nutritional dead end. Both our guests also touched on the topic of quality. Whether it's broccoli or grass-fed steak, not all produce is created equal. What did really perplex me is how we can know what is right for us. Is it how we look and feel? that truly matters. I would hazard if your tummy is over your pants, you are not on an optimal diet. Thanks for listening and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into whether you can hack your cancer odds with lifestyle, the benefits of psychiatry versus holistic treatments, the pros and cons of the keto diet and what works in the world of beauty. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.